0: And look how many people there are. This is just unbelievable. Uh, you guys are sticking together like a church family because a church is not a building. Amen? Man. But uh, thank you so much for your help with our building. Uh, while you're nomads, we were able to move into a space and you guys have brought some teams and you've, you've done work for us and we're so thankful for your partnership with our building. Also, Brother Key right up here has a building just a block away From where we're at, and we're entering. We we've got some sweet ministry partnership already with with Brother Key, and and thank you for your partnership with One Hope. Uh, One way you could pray for One Hope is we have one of our church planters starting Christianity Explained Bible Study uh, with a group in his his uh, focused neighborhood this month. So if you could be praying for the Sandtown Church Plant, uh, we would appreciate that. You guys, maybe some of you don't know this, but you guys financially support church planting. Uh, building healthy churches in the inner city of baltimore through the one hope ministry so thank you for that thank you for your giving and your support of that ministry and pastor james thank you for having me back brother uh it's so good to have you I, i think the world of your pastor he's an encouragement to me and just what a guy he is amen all right but let's not focus on pastor james let's focus on the lord we are captivated by jesus this morning and that's the title for my sermon, Captivated by Jesus. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 11. Luke 5, 1 through 11. And when you're there, I'll ask you to stand. And let's read this. Uh, let, me, let me read this in your hearing. Uh, but let's stand for the Word of God. Stand with me. Luke chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 11. And they came and filled both boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I want to preach to you this morning on these, or this afternoon on these verses, and I'm going to title this sermon, Captivated by Jesus. Let's pray together and ask God for his help. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, God, that, it, that You would now speak to us, that You would use me to speak Your truths, not merely my own ideas, that You would open our hearts to shape us according to Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Adniram Judson was afforded every opportunity you can imagine. Grew up in a family of means and education. However, he heard of the unreached people groups, first in India, then eventually in Burma, who had no knowledge of the Gospel, did not know anything about Jesus Christ, and Judson felt compelled to leave everything that he knows to go to them. And so he began working toward that goal, and raising money, and talking about it, and getting support. And he encountered a massive problem. He fell in love with a young lady named Ann. Now, Anne was also a young girl of means and opportunity. What's he going to do? Is he going to stay in the States and Developed this relationship with Anne. And so he determined, no, I, I, must, I must go and keep going and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of leave, leave behind this idea of marriage. But then he had this thought. Maybe I could marry her. And so he decided he's going to marry her. He's going he's to try to marry her. So he, he wrote to Anne's father a letter asking for Anne's hand in marriage. So maybe you've heard this letter before. Maybe you haven't. Either way, I'm encouraged every time I read it. Let me read to you uh, Adoniram's letter to Anne's father asking for her hand in marriage. He says this, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of Him who left His heavenly home and died for her and for you. For the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound, re- redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Well, her father said yes, and they went to Burma, and their lives were cut short. Adnaram Judson was being tortured, literally, his feet were raised up, couldn't get the mosquitoes off of them, a form of torture uh, for, for months, and, and during that time his wife caught a sickness and died. Here's the question I want to ask today that is this, what would compel two young people with such opportunity to give up everything that they know to see Christ proclaimed? I mean, if you think of this from a worldly standpoint, it's crazy. And so I want to take a step back and just ask this morning this honest question, why Would we sacrifice so that others might know Jesus Christ? Now, as we think of this, we could use the word mission or evangelism, outreach. As we think of this, though, here's the key. I don't want to motivate you this morning with guilt. I want us to be motivated by seeing Christ, the person And work of Jesus. In verse ten, Jesus says, From now on, you will be catching men. He is completely reorienting the lives of these fishermen. And for us, we have a temptation that we might live our lives for ourselves. often we tend to just just kind of fall back into comfort mentality. We live our lives for our self-benefit. Sinfully, sometimes we might live selfishly even and ignore the needs of others. Or worse, we might take advantage of others and use others to satisfy our sinful pleasures and desires. Or even worse, We might see Jesus not as a treasure, but as a means for us to get a treasure, to get what we want on earth. So the question here that we can ask is, is Jesus a means to your treasure, or is Jesus your treasure? As Jesus reoriented the disciples' entire lives through this call, you're going to be catching men. In the same way, the Great Commission was given to us in Matthew chapter 28, go into all the world, preach the gospel, and that includes here in this area, D.C. through Baltimore and then beyond, that we are to be people on mission for Jesus. We are part of this same story. And it's a story that has called us, if you're a Christian, to live beyond yourself. It's called you to something better. And maybe you're not a Christian here, and I want to invite you this morning to explore and examine Jesus, and know that Jesus is calling you to a better life than anything this world can give. But leading not with guilt, but lifting up Jesus Here we go. You ready? Four truths from this text that I want to point out so that we might be captivated by Jesus. Number one, Jesus is commanding. Jesus is commanding. Let me set the stage for you there at the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Gennesaret and the crowds are pressing on him. I think of Beatles hysteria in the 1960s. Jesus at this moment is sort of like this instantaneous celebrity that kind of came out of nowhere. And he's popular in this moment. And just, just as like a celebrity's trying to get away from the crowds. Jesus is literally, in, at least in my mind, he's pushed up against the water. And he has no place to go. And he has this massive crowd who wants to be preached to. And so he has this idea. He sees these two boats. One of them is owned by Simon, Simon Peter. Peter. He hops in the boat and he, he goes on out with Simon. And he basically creates a pulpit on water, and he preaches to the crowd. And then after he's done preaching, the story moves pretty quickly. In verse two, he says, "Hey, let's let's go for a catch." Uh, uh, look at verse three. He says, "Getting in one of the boats." Or verse three, verse four. He says that. Verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, he sat down, he taught the people from the boat, verse 4, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, in verse 2, we discovered that they were washing their nets. A little bit about fishing culture in this day, they're fishing all night long, that's when you want to catch fish. Uh, 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 when the day's over, the night's over, they're on the the beach washing their nets. That means they're done. And what we discover is after a full night of fishing, they've caught nothing. Now think about this. This is in a time where you're, you're living based off of what you catch. If you don't catch any fish for the day, you don't have a whole lot of fish on reserves. You've got to catch You've got to sell so that you can eat. So the story actually begins with failure. They were out all night long, and they failed. It's now morning, and they've failed. They're sitting on the beach, washing their nets, not as victors, not as people looking to go sell their fish, make some money, buy some food at the market, but they're washing their nets as those who have given up. That's how the story begins. They're washing their nets, and then Jesus comes along, and he says, hey, let's go for a catch. Now, let me just remind you, Jesus was a trained carpenter, not a fisherman. And he's with professional fishermen. Can you imagine what's going through their mind? You must be a fool. Uh, I'm reminded of a few years ago, my Honda Accord passed away, and I, I was driving down the road, and it just zonked out on me, and so I had it towed to a place, and they charged me $160 to tell me that it was done, you know, and so I'm on the phone with my friend Brian from church, and I say, hey, could you come pick me up, my, my, my car's gone, I need a ride, um, and he was like, are you sure that it's not working, I'm like, yeah, I just paid $160. They said it's dead. He, and he was like, Have you tried the ignition? Now, I'm not, there was no like turn, there's no fancy turn in this story. The car was dead, all right? That's just Brian's stupid humor. And I was like, Bro, of course I tried the ignition. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But that's kind of the vibe I get here when Jesus is out with these fishermen who have been out all night long and have caught nothing, and they've washed their nets, they're done, they're tired, they're smelly, they want to go home for the the day and get some rest, and Jesus is feeling a little hungry, and he says, hey, let's go for a catch. They must have looked at him like he was crazy. Of course we've tried to go for a catch. Well, I love Simon's answer. Look at verse 5. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Pause right there. We toiled all night. We worked hard. We took nothing. He's stating the facts. I've tried the ignition. But look at the next line. But at your word. I love that. But at your word. Jesus, you don't know, but at your word. I'll trust you. This is childlike trust. Again, if you're not a Christian here, what does it mean to become a Christian? It's to trust Jesus with a childlike kind of faith. And I don't mean that you set your intellect aside. I don't mean that Christ cannot be intellectually examined. But at the end of the day, we are called to trust Him. At your Word. All who are tired, come and find rest at your word. If you are weary, you can come to Jesus and lean into Him and find what you need at your word. If you have shame, you're overburdened with shame, you hear that Christ bore the shame on the cross. And He takes your shame at your Word. You're overwhelmed with guilt at your Word. All who are tired, come to Jesus. All who are thirsty, come to Jesus. All who are weary, come to Jesus. All who are overladen with guilt, come to Jesus. You see, we, we, th- we say, well, how does the science work? How does the logic work? How does this work? Like, Let me try to figure this out. But we're called to trust him, even when it doesn't make sense. How can one man's death 2,000 years ago take away my sin today? I trust him at your word. At your word. I'm not righteous, but he lived the righteous life that I should have lived. And the scripture tells me that if I have faith in him, his righteousness is imputed to me at your word. We're trusting Him. I have sinned. He was sinless. He died on the cross as the sinless sacrifice, taking the judgment for my sin in His own body on the tree. We trust Him at Your Word. He he rose from the dead. We're dying. We're facing our death. We're feeling our bodies decay. Our parents are nearing their death. Our grandparents are nearing their death. And all in Christ will rise again at your word. We trust Him. And so what happens is they put the nets back into the water and they catch a lot of fish. You know, I love, like the Bible is so anticlimactic sometimes in the way it's written. Like in modern writing you know if it was a story today it would be this big build-up and they would the author would kind of create this climax and all the fish of the sea would come in but in in the scriptures they just kind of tell it just how it was getting in to the one of the boats which was simon's he asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat and when he had finished speaking he said to simon put out into the deep let down your nets for a catch At your word, he says. Going on, verse 6, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and the nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. The author is just giving it to you as it happened. All the fish in the sea came into these nets. They caught so many fish, they called out the second boat and both boats began sink. sink that is crazy that's phenomenal that's better than if my engine my ignition rather turned on my honda accord after the mechanic told me it was dead this is a miracle what changed what changed from their work all night until now this morning what changed did they get new nets did they change their bait? What changed? The answer is Christ. What changed is that Jesus is with them. Jesus cared about their fish. I want you to think about this. We spend so much time worrying. Don't we? I was just recently talking to somebody about this. A friend of mine. Talking about how we worry about something keeps us up all night we worry all day about it god in some way provides for us we get past it it's no longer a worry and we're spending all of our energy worrying now about something else and we just worry and anxiety from thing to thing to thing i just want to say to you that jesus cared about the fish of the disciples if jesus cares about the lily of the field Does he not care about you? If Jesus cares about the the sparrow, does he not watch over you? Jesus can do more, here in this case, in five minutes or in ten minutes perhaps than these disciples could do in ten hours of fishing all night. Jesus can do more in five minutes in your life. Than you can do in five years. And so why worry? And everything that God does in our life is for your good and for your glory, uh, for God's glory, according to Romans 8:28. Jesus, here's my first point: Jesus is commanding. He's commanding. And when Jesus moves, things happen. When Jesus speaks, things happen. Secondly, Jesus is comforting. Not only is He this commanding presence, but I also want you to see Jesus' comfort in this text. Why? Well, because Peter's first response to this miracle is horror. Look at verse 8. When, Peter, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from Me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now O oh Lord is a step up from master in verse 2. I think Peter is seeing something happening and he's going from calling him a more general term of master to Lord in verse 8. He's he's he, he's recognizing some element of power here, but I want to focus on this question, why the horror? Like why is Peter's response get away from me? Depart from me. Well, if I could use shoes is an analogy. I don't know if you can see my white shoes down here, but they're nice and white, right? I went into the to the shoe store a couple couple uh, months ago, and I wasn't planning on buying shoes. But I got into the shoe store and I saw a pair of nice white shoes. And I put them on. And after I put them on, I looked at the shoes I walked in with. And I was like, I don't think I can put those back on. Like, I was pretty happy with my old shoes walking in. And then once I get inside, you know how you realize, like, you thought your shoes were white, and then you compare them to other shoes that are white, and you're like, wow, my shoes are disgusting. This is Peter's response. You see, Peter probably, I'm assuming, thought of himself as a pretty good guy, meaning he wasn't a bad guy, he wasn't one of those robbers, he's a fisherman, he's a He's working an honest job. He's doing all right. He's he's seeking to uh, love Yahweh and observe the law. He's he's a good guy. But as soon as Peter encounters the clean, he is deeply aware of how dirty he is. It's when he encounters the holy that he understands how deeply he is a sinner. It's when he encounters the powerful that he understands just how weak he actually is. It's when Peter comes face to face with God. Well, see, it was this power that he saw in Christ in verse 9 that was astonishing for he and all who with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. When they see this power, it brought Peter to this crisis of faith. You see, we, we cannot become a Christian or be a Christian without at some level ever coming to a crisis in which we realize we are a sinner that cannot come before God. Now maybe you were saved young and you don't quite remember that crisis, but if you're a Christian, whether you remember it or not, I'm telling you, there had to have been a crisis because we have to know that we need a Savior in order to come to the Savior of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? This is Peter's crisis moment in which he realizes, I can't stand in front of God. I can't stand in front of this man. I can't stand in front of the Holy One. Perhaps He is the Messiah. Perhaps He is the chosen one we've been looking forward to. I can't be in His presence. I'm too much of a sinner. Depart from me. Get away from me. His response was horror. But look at Jesus' response to Peter in verse 10. He says, do not be afraid. You see that comfort? The powerful one, the commanding one, commands Peter now. Do not be afraid. I've never counted it myself, but I've heard the most repeated command in the New Testament is do not... Be afraid. Do not not fear. Take heart. Rest in Christ. God is a comforting God in Jesus Christ. The Scriptures tell us, blessed are the poor in spirit. Meaning, blessed is the one who realizes their spiritual bank account is broke. Blessed is the one who realizes that they they have spiritual poverty. They are the ones on the cusp of salvation. They are the ones coming to Christ. They are the ones clinging to the righteousness of Christ. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. It's, it's when the holy came down to earth and entered our world so that a wretch like you and I might encounter Him, realize our need for a Savior, and then find in Jesus Christ every bit of comfort and every bit of forgiveness and every bit of salvation that we need. As Richard Sibbs says, there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. God is a forgiving God. He's a comforting God. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. John Newton said at the end of his life, as his memory was leaving him, I don't remember much, but I remember this that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. He's comforting, commanding, and he's comforting. Number three, Jesus is commissioning. He's commissioning. Let me explain to you what I mean by this and how this helps us. There's a uh, TV show called All Creatures Great and Small. Anybody seen it? Watching some of it with my kids. At least I tried to and they got bored with it. So I'm going to give it a second shot, I think. Uh, But I like the show. And there's this, there's this part in the show where this, uh, this, this, this worker uh, is about to get fired. He really made a big mess of things. And in a turn of events, his boss comes to him and asks him, when can you be ready for work? And it's this moment of assurance, this happy moment, because this man who thought that he was going to be cut off has now been given a job. My point is this. When we are given a job, there is a sense of assurance there. If I was a wealthy CEO, which I'm not, and I came to you and I said, hey, would you be my assistant? You might be like, that's not really my gig. And I said, hey, I pay, you know, $200,000 a year. Would you consider it? You might be like, I'm in. And you would feel a sense of, of assurance and dignity. And like, wow, he asked me, to work this kind of job. That's pretty cool. This is what I see happening in this text. It's really amazing when you think about how quickly this all takes place. In verse 10, look at verse 10 again. He says, do not be afraid. What's his next line? From now on, you'll be catching men. It's almost as if he's saying, the reason that you need not fear is because I'm commissioning you. The reason you need not fear is because I'm giving you a job. Don't you see that our conviction is wrapped up in comfort? And our comfort in Christ leads to a call, to a commission. And that is to catch men. The word catch there is a different word in verse 9 than it is in verse 4. In verse 4, the word catch is the kind of word that means uh, like hunting prey, catching for death. Whereas the word in verse nine is a, a word, or verse 10 rather, is a word that means catching for life. What he's saying is is, "I am changing your vocation. You are no longer going to be catching fish for death. But now, from now on, you are going to be catching men for life. You are going to be rescuing those who are in the depths of their sin and misery. Those who have been plunged into the bondage of sin and death. And through the proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, we will see God bring them to life. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and I went forth and I followed Thee. And as we get a glimpse into the future of these fishermen, let me remind you that Peter in this text later on in his life preached to 3,000. And the Lord converted them on that day. And he went on to plant churches preach the gospel, and help develop an understanding of God's theology. James was one of the first martyrs, died by the sword, gave his all for Jesus. John went on to write five books of the Bible, pastored in Ephesus. He discipled a man named Polycarp, who discipled a man named Arrhenius, who discipled Hippolytus of Rome, who who, who discipled Origen. Of North Africa, which means in four generations, we see the gospel go over the, throughout the globe of the known world through John's ministry. Meaning, these guys on this boat, like this was actually played out, and they, 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 they spent their lives proclaiming this Jesus and seeing God capture men and women. Who are in bondage to death and rescue them to life. And that continues today. It continues. I mean, let's go back a couple hundred years to Adniram Johnson's Judson, ministry. By the way, his ministry is still continuing. We had a visitor in our church who told me that he, he pastors a church in Atlanta. They have a, a, a congregation of folks from Myanmar, which is modern day Burma, in his congregation. And his congregation of folks in Myanmar was started by this old man. He's in his 80s or 90s. And he is a, uh, I think his uh, great, 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 five greats, grandfather, something like that, was converted by Adoniram Judson. Isn't that amazing? The ministry, I mean, just continues of the word. You have no clue how God is going to use you. And right here in this part of Maryland, the, the need for the gospel is so great. God is doing a work here. In your life, at your school, at your job, with your children as you raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, the work goes on. It's still being played out. Let me ask you this question as just a word of application. Who are you sharing the Gospel with? Who are you seeking to disciple? And again, this is not a motivation of guilt but rather a motivation of let's see Jesus and let's go and make uh, uh, become fishers of men. And then secondly, how can you do this together? What are ways that you can work together in the mission as a church seeing the gospel go forward? Yes, we will be on mission together to catch humans for life. Now, as we close here, I want to close with this question. What is the goal of all of this? Even as you think of continuing on as a congregation and growing as a congregation, what you're clearly doing, perhaps getting into a space, maybe your own space someday, becoming more settled. Like, what's, what's the goal of all of this? Is it merely to see lives changed? That's pretty cool. But is that the goal? Is it to see Rockville and surrounding communities changed? That'd be wonderful if you see change. Is that the goal? What I want to close with is is just this this thought from this text, and that is this. The goal of seeing Jesus is to see Jesus. It's that we might be captivated by Jesus. Jesus. And that's how I want to close. Jesus is captivating. That's my fourth point. Jesus is captivating. You've probably heard the the parable that Jesus gave of the buried treasure. A man found a treasure buried in the ground. He was the servant of that ground. And so what does he do? He goes home and he puts everything on Facebook Marketplace. And his wife is probably flipping out. Like, what are you doing? Why are you selling everything? Facebook Marketplace is like the worst place to sell stuff anyway. He puts a sign out front his house is for sale. He sells his car, he sells everything he owns. But then what does he do with the money? He takes that money and he buys the field. And with the field he now has the buried treasure. See, he loses everything that he has so that he might gain that which that which is so much more valuable. As we, as we look at this, as this narrative closes, as we look at the end of it here, backing up a little bit, remember they had two boatload uh, uh, f- boats filled with, with fish. I don't know uh, what that would be worth. The scholars say it would be something like six months' salary. I mean, this is a huge catch, As they're coming back to land, you would think that they'd be like celebrating and popping bottles of champagne and like shouting and thinking about how they're going to spend all their money. But what do we see in verse 11? The picture I get is as they come back, they're, they're gazing at Jesus. When they had brought their boats to land, it says they left everything and followed Him. They left everything. It's not that six months of salary doesn't matter. It's not that the fish didn't matter. Jesus cared about fish. He fed the disciples fish. But they found something so much more valuable than the fish. And that is Christ. Captivated by Jesus. Gazing at Christ. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not simply about us getting good things. Money fades. Clothes wear out. Vacations come to an end. Fish rot. But Jesus is forever. What testifies to the goodness of Christ is when we are captivated by Jesus in the good times and the bad. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, we're not just simply devout when we need something. You know, perhaps some of you are starting up a new semester at school and you're a little nervous and you're going to be like, all right, I'm going to get it together and I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to pray and I'm going to be in my word and I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to sin because I've got to get an A in this class. And then what happens when you get the A in the class and summer hits? You forget him. Well, maybe we're just coming to Jesus to get. We're just coming to him to get some of that fish. We're coming to him to get a treasure, but Jesus is not our treasure. No, Jesus is not a means to an end, saints. Jesus is the end. Oh man, I wish we could ask Peter today after 2,000 years of seeing the glory of Christ face to face in heaven. Was he worth it? Peter, who lost his own life, crucified according to tradition, upside down for following Jesus. Peter, was it worth it to give your whole life and to be tortured in your death to follow Christ? Was it worth it? After 2,000 years in heaven. Absolutely. Absolutely. James, was it worth it? Was Jesus worth it to die by the sword? Yes, He's worth it. John, Who was exiled to Patmos, lived a long life, but a hard life because of Christ. Was it worth it, John? Yes. How about Polycarp, one of John's disciples, who at 86 years old was arrested, was thrown into the Colosseum. He was threatened by fire. If you don't renounce Jesus, we'll burn you alive. Jesus says, or I'm sorry, Polycarp says, after 86 years, he's never failed me once. Why would I renounce him now? He's worth it. And they burned him at the stake. The goal of our salvation is the glory of Christ. All of history is leading us to this point where we see Jesus face to face. And we will be so captivated by his beauty on that day that everything else fades away you know heaven is described as a place with streets of gold and pearly gates and sometimes we think that's what's gonna thrill us in heaven or maybe seeing a lost loved one certainly i'm gonna enjoy seeing the streets of gold and the pearly gates and i'm going to enjoy seeing my lost loved ones but what's going to captivate us in heaven is Christ. We are going to enter into, through the pearly gates of heaven and discover that the reason they pave the uh, the roads with gold there is because the the greatest thing we have on earth here is just simply pavement there. Because Christ is so much more glorious and will join our loved ones that we miss in forever being captivated with Him worshiping Him, loving Him forever and ever and ever, our gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. And we will sing this song, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever and ever, and ever, be captivated by Jesus. We will forever be captivated by Jesus. Amen? Father, we thank You for this moment with these disciples that You have given to us as Your Word, that we can enjoy That we can learn from, that we can benefit from. But more than anything, more than learning lessons, God, what we see in in this text is Jesus Himself. And I pray that we would be a people that are captivated by Him, that are drawn to Him, and then that are driven by Him as we go about our mission, making disciples, making Him known. For Your glory. For our good, we ask these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.